Welcome back to the Investing on the Go podcast brought to you by Fund Caliber. Contrarian investing, picking the stocks other people avoid, has traditionally paid handsome returns, but investors must be patient. Today's guest, Alex Wright, talks to us about the UK market and reveals why he thinks banks, after a decade of no profits, are the most exciting sector today. I'm Chris Sarley, and today we're joined by Alex Wright, manager of the Elite Rated Fidelity Special Values Trust. Alex, thanks for joining us once again. Thank you for having me. It's no problem at all. Um, let's start with the landscape of all things UK. So um, if you weren't an expert in financial services and you looked at a lot of the headlines, you'd see you know, talk of recession and concerns, et cetera, around the market in the UK and globally. But when you look at the FTSE 100, which is obviously the largest 100 companies in the UK, it's had a pretty strong 12 months compared to other markets. And it's, it's not far off all-time highs. Does that mean the valuations of these companies are actually expensive now or, or do they still have, offer good value? And, and if so, where? Yeah, you're right. So it's been it's been an encouraging year, 2022, with the FTSE 100 up almost sort of 5%. Um, and that's very different from international markets, which have clearly fallen even in pound terms. So it's, it's great to see the UK market finally outperforming. I think what from a a valuation point of view, what's more encouraging, though, is despite actually that outperformance, that absolute increase in value, the, the FTSE 100 itself is actually about 20% cheaper than it was 12 months ago. And that's because the earnings of the market have grown. So you've seen some very strong earnings growth coming through in 2022, um, which again is in contrast to other markets where they're having quite big downgrades. And so the valuation on about 10 times earnings today for the, the FTSE 100 looks really good versus its 14 times long-term average. And actually, it looks particularly good compared to other markets. So the US market, for example, despite having a really poor performance in 2022, still trades on over 17 times earnings. So I think from a relative point of view, the UK is a particularly good place to be looking today um, it, it, across all markets globally. Okay. Um, there's two sides to that, obviously. While the, while the, the sort of FTSE 100 has been quite resilient um the smaller and mid cap end of the spectrum has not had such a good year um as a sort of value investor or someone who looks for shares that are trading on not on the cheap necessarily but you know looking for those you know gems does does this mean you're finding lots of opportunities in that space and maybe sort of talk us through the sectors and a couple of examples of where you are if that's the case so the, the fund has always had a big um, bias to the mid and small cap market. So about 60% of the fund is in mid and small caps, and that compares to only about 20% of the overall uh, FTSE all share, which is the benchmark. So, so always a big structural overweight to this part of the, the market. Um, that said, I don't think the ideas are just coming in, in small cap land. Um, and that's partly because actually, if you look at how the valuations stack up, Mid caps and large caps are roughly trading on very similar multiples now, sort of 10, 11 times. Small caps are somewhat cheaper, kind of eight times earnings. So the, the big underperformance you've seen of those mid and small caps, uh, partly the earnings weren't as strong as the large caps last year, but also you were starting at higher valuation levels. So that's somewhat of a correction. So I would say pretty much all parts of the market now look largely equally attractive, maybe with a little bit of preference towards smaller companies. Um, 
And part of that is because the smaller companies do tend to be a bit more cyclical in terms of they are a bit more at risk from um, recession and that we're, we're obviously starting to see now in, in some developed markets. Um, that said, I think it, you do see opportunities where things like the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater. So a good example of a new idea in this space is TT Electronics. That's something which is a cyclical business, but actually 50% of that business is to medical and, and aero markets. And so probably only half of the business is, is probably going to be negatively affected because medical tends to be uh, pretty much acyclical and aero uh, is still going through a recovery uh, post-COVID. So it's that kind of thing that we're we're looking to pick up. And, and that's an example of a stock we bought in sort of Q2 and Q3 last year. In terms of sort of the wider opportunities, then, so obviously you've got a portfolio of stocks. Do you have a lot of sort of sit on your bench because the market looks attractive in this climate that you could easily bring in? It's, you know, is, is it is it sweet shop scenario at the moment for for the trust in terms of the opportunity? Mm, in the market? So I'm not sure the opportunity set is bigger than we've seen historically. Uh, I'd, I'd say it's good, but it's not that different because I think you do have to bear in mind that while well, valuations are good. And so the trust itself drives on about eight and a half times earnings. So quite a discount to the, the market on sort of 10 or 11. And um, there are those economic headwinds out there and earnings are quite high versus history. So quite a lot of our thoughts are thinking about downside protection in terms of what is a tougher economic environment going to mean for companies and therefore what are the realistic earnings going to look like compared to what the current forecasts are. So I think you you need to be careful that just because valuations are low and that that's not the only signal, you, you need to think about the earnings as well. Okay. Let's talk about one specific sector, which is 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 banks and wider financials. I mean that the former has almost been a bit of a dirty word in the industry after the, the sort of global financial crisis. Could you maybe explain why you've now sort of increased your exposure to those at that area of the market and just give us an exa- a sort of example of why? You're right, Chris. So I think throughout actually most of my fund management career, which, which pretty much started in sort of 2007, sort of um, banks and financials as a whole have been an area that investors have shied away from, not just because of, I guess, the issues through the financial crisis, but also the inherent complexity of the sector. It, it's much more difficult to work out what's going on in these businesses that have differential accounting compared to, to industrial companies. And I think if you don't have specialists and analyst team to help you, it's quite hard to work out what's going on here. Whereas, yeah, it's a sector I've covered as an analyst here at Fidelity, and we have special um, analyst coverage, um, career analysts on the sector. And indeed, I think today, banks is the most exciting sector in the whole of the market. And indeed, it's been one of the best performing over the last 12 months as well. And I think that may come as a surprise to a lot of people as we're, we're heading into tougher economic times. But it's because of the fact that there has been a sea change in the last year in terms of interest rate levels. That's been a key reason why banks haven't been able to make a return over the last decade, because you still had all the costs of running people's current accounts, uh, which was traditionally a key source of, of cheap deposit funding for banks. So that the flip side of you getting free banking is that the, the banks get your, your deposits um, at zero and then they can lend them out at a higher rate. Mm-hmm. Clearly, while rates were, were largely zero, that that um, competitive advantage of large banks disappeared. And that's now come back and you're starting to see banks finally earn decent returns on equity again. So NatWest now for, for 2023 is forecasting around a 15% return on equity. So that's above the market as a whole. So this is now a higher quality than average company within the market, but yet it's trading on about six times those earnings. So a dramatic discount. Um, so I think 
That's why banks look so interesting. There's been a, a dramatic change in their returns um, compared to the sort of five or six percent levels you've seen for, for 10 years plus. And that also means they're a lot more resilient to a downturn because you've got that high levels of profit. So even if you do see people default on some of your loans, um, you, you've got a big profit buffer, which is very different than we've seen at any time uh, since 2006. Even if rates were to say, I mean, obviously banks are, are far better capitalised now than they were in the sort of financial crisis or as a result of the financial crisis. Um, obviously, there's talk of you know inflation peaking and perhaps rates falling back. I mean, you wouldn't be concerned about that because it would have to go back to sort of the, the levels we've seen sort of in the past decade of almost negligible rates to, to be a concern. So is, is that another reason to support the sort of idea behind the banking sector? Uh, yeah, so I think you're, you're right. Like um, in a recession, we would expect interest rates to start to come back down. Um, the question is, is are they going to go back to the, the sort of pretty much zero rates that they're at? Because banks can still make pretty good returns at sort of a one or two percent interest rate level. It, it's once they get below that level, it becomes very hard to make a return. Also, the, the effects of this feed in gradually. So banks have what they call a structural hedge where they actually um, put the, the money they get on zero rate deposit out onto five-year money. So actually, some of the benefits of the 22 increase in earnings still are feeding in in 23, 24, and 25. So again, if interest rates started to fall back down again, that effect would be delayed on the banks. And again, that's one reason why banks were such a painful investment for so long, because prior years of higher interest rates sort of bled out of the banks for quite a long time uh, over the last decade. Obviously, we mentioned the R word there and in terms of recession and whether it's going to be what type of recession, if there is going to be one, which there sort of looks like there is. Um, do you have any other areas beyond financials and, and sort of the banking sector where you feel, um, you know, there's a sort of recession proofing element to the portfolio and any specific areas you might like beyond those? So I think... Uh, clearly, there's a lot of more defensive sectors in the UK as well, and we definitely have holdings there, like Imperial Tobacco is the, the second biggest holding in the fund. Serco, which faces governments, is the, the third biggest holding. And so those are it, it, those are decent areas that will be largely unaffected by a recession. I think in a way, though, it's those areas that people think will be affected by a recession and therefore really cheap valuations that are more interesting. So we obviously talked about banks. And again, I think I want to be careful to sort of say a recession will hit the earnings of the banks if it comes through. And I just think the sort of the huge discounts you have sort of protect you in share price terms, whereas something like an insurance, which people also see as quite cyclical, that's much more recession resilient as we sort of saw through COVID. So through COVID, where banks' earnings largely went to zero as they, they took big provisions for, for loans. Admittedly, provisions they then actually reversed because those didn't come through. But insurers did not have to do that uh, and continue to pay their dividend yields and their earnings were largely unaffected. So that's an area that, again, people traditionally think will be hit by a recession, but, but actually is much more resilient and still offers sort of seven to eight percent dividend yields. So that's actually the second biggest position in the the fund after banks because I think it's it's misunderstood and very lowly valued. You mentioned dividends, so let's move to that as well. Then, what are your thoughts on dividends? Obviously, the fund doesn't specifically look for an income; it produces a, a reasonably good natural one. Do you, do you think that's um, beneficial to investors in this climate? 
Yeah, definitely. So dividends are always a key part of um, investors' returns over time, the total shareholder return. And we very much look at each individual stock and what kind of total um, shareholder return can it produce, including dividends. Some companies we own a, a very large percentage of, I think the total return will come from dividends. So something like an Imperial um, Imperial Brands that, that has a 7% yield, a lot of the return we think will come from that. Um, also, Ithaca, a recent buy for the fund, that has close to a 15% dividend yield, um, which is particularly attractive. Um, but overall, the portfolio, as I said, sort of looks for um, both um, absolute return from the share price and the dividend. So the natural yield is about 4.5% of the portfolio, which is a bit lower than the market on five, as we don't own some big dividend payers. And I think both of those stack up very well compared to if you think about where you can go on gilts at about 3.5%. So I think it, the, the, the dividend is very much something which is attractive in, in UK shares as a whole, particularly versus um, fixed income and other markets where dividend yields are much lower. Again, the FTSE's um, traditionally quite a high payer and continues to be so. Okay. Uh, and let's just sort of finish on on the companies that sort of drive the portfolio. Um, you've got a couple of non-UK holdings, which uh, you prefer sort of over the UK peers, the, the likes of Sanofi, the, the sort of French healthcare company, and you've got a, an Austrian oil and gas company called OMV. Could, could you maybe explain the rationale behind those and maybe why you hold the latter over the likes of sort of Astra and BP? Yeah, definitely. So the, the fund is is primarily a UK um, investment trust. So it has to have 80% of the assets in the UK, but we do use that 20%. Uh, I think we're using about 15% of it today. Uh, and you've mentioned two of the most notable names. So if you, you look at them specifically, to me, Sanofi just looks a better idea than, than Glaxo in terms of both its growth from the, its key Dupixon franchise, which is still growing very strongly, um, but also it's quite strong balance sheet. Um, so it has a much lower debt level than um, Glaxo. Um, and therefore, it's it, it sort of stacks up both in terms of growth um, and downside protection. And then OMV is a, is a more complicated story, but one that I think is, is really quite interesting. So we bought into that earlier this year as they, they fell quite a lot when the oil price went up in March um, compared to other oil companies, which did very well. And that's because OMV um, did distribute some Russian gas and had a, an oil field in Russia. So while Shell and BP had JVs in Russia, they did directly distribute um, Russian gas. And people were very concerned about what that meant um, in terms of sort of OMV supply contracts and their, their obligations. And we were convinced that, that that was gas that they could substitute from elsewhere and those fears were, were overblown. Um, and also OMV being a much more gas-focused portfolio looked particularly attractive because clearly the, the global supply of oil hasn't really changed because of, of Russia-Ukraine. Russia is unfortunately able to divert where it sends its oil uh, away from sort of G7 countries, whereas actually most of its gas was piped to Europe. And therefore, again, that there is a new demand for gas. The gas in Europe is increasingly not going to come from Russia. And therefore, you do need to develop more gas. And OMV has new um, gas fields ready to go, particularly in Romania, um, that has been stalled recently and I think can push forward. And so that looks really quite attractive. So as we, had, well as, we had a warm winter this year, but it might not necessarily be the case next year. So yeah, so it's been, it's been very helpful to, to Europe that we haven't used the, the gas. So the, the near-term situation has been alleviated, but that long-term still needs to 
be fixed. Um, and in the meantime, yeah, ga gas is still trading at high levels compared to history, nowhere near the highest levels that it's been over the last 12 months. But that's very beneficial to OMV and has in fact allowed them to, to double their dividend this year. So it's yielding about 10%, where Shell's yielding about five. So I think you've got you've got both near-term earnings from, from gas, but also that, that medium-term development potential that looks much more interesting at OMV. Alex, once again, thanks for joining us and uh, explaining everything, all, not just UK, a little bit overseas as well. Thanks for your time. Thank you. The Fidelity Special Values Trust aims to achieve capital growth by investing primarily in unloved UK companies and waiting for them to come back into favor. The trust can hold some overseas stocks too, although this is limited to no more than 20% of the value of the portfolio. To learn more about the Fidelity Special Values Trust, visit fundcaliber.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the Investing on the Go podcast available wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember, we've been discussing individual companies to bring investing to life for you. It's not a recommendation to buy or sell. The fund may or may not still hold these companies at the time of listening. Elite ratings are based on Fund Calibre's research methodology and are the opinion of Fund Calibre's research team only. 